how can you plan and budget for a year when there's so many things up in the air? Today, we'll go over how the two of you can create a plan and budget so that you can hit your goals while still being flexible enough to switch gears if needed. Welcome to Simplify and Enjoy, the podcast and community focused on helping families have less stress and more options through minimalism and financial independence. I'm your host, El Martinez. This podcast is sponsored by Coastal Credit Union. Coastal's mission is to help you live a better life by offering you a better way to bank. Find out how at bankbetter.org. This first month of 2021 is just about wrapped up, and already it's been an eventful year. A huge challenge we faced in 2020, and it looks like for a good part of this year, is going to be creating plans when there's no firm idea of what to expect. I heard from many of you the frustration and the stress of having plans started at the beginning of the year and then getting hit with the pandemic or the financial fallout from it and it throwing everything off. It's understandable if you are not looking to repeat that in 2021. While we can't prepare for every single situation and emergency, there are steps we can take to shore up our finances and give us more options. Our goals and our budgets need to have flexibility built in so that we can pivot for whatever comes up. But how do you do that? How do you plan and budget when you don't know what to expect? That's going to be our focus for today. We're going to look at the big picture and talk about how to approach your goals for this year and your budget. Then we're going to drill down with a goal that many couples have, paying off their student loans. And coming up with a plan when there's still certain decisions that haven't been made yet. There was an announcement last week with federal student loans, but are we going to have anything forgiven? Certified student loan professional Megan Landris is here to talk about your options and what the two of you need to discuss to come up with a plan that fits your needs. We got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Looking back at 2020, one of the realizations I saw in the personal finance space is that being hardcore or following strict rules isn't the way to handle your finances. You have to have some flexibility. One of the things I love about our community is how diverse it is. We have families spread out throughout this country and listeners all around the world, and we each have our own unique circumstances. We have families making $60,000. We have families making $160,000. All the numbers in between and above and below. Having a one-size-fits-all approach with personal finances and budgets and goals just isn't going to work. It's not practical. What I've tried to do with this podcast and on the site is to focus instead on the principles, the conversations, the questions we need to ask each other in our families to make sure that we have what we need to hit our goals, and that fits our current circumstances. Instead of talking about how much to save per month, I might have as a starting point a percentage that can give you something to work towards, and then you can adjust those numbers as you see fit. Last year, I saw a comment about that phrase, we're all in the same boat when it came to the pandemic and everything that fell out from that. I'll try to find the source and link to it in the show notes. Basically, it was saying, we're not in the same boat, but we're going through the same storm. And I think that acknowledges that when you're talking about the pandemic and the financial fallout, some families were in a good position. There 
able to ride out the storm much better than a family that maybe was caught in the beginning of their financial journey. We did a series last year about the coronavirus and your money. We teamed up with Coastal for that mini-series. As we were putting together the episodes, it became obvious that we had to split based on how people were doing financially. Families that had seen a drop of income needed to follow a different path than a family that had their safety net set up and they were still both working. If you haven't already, please listen to the episode that fits your situation best for specific advice and steps that can help you with your finances. Today, I want to take a step back and look at the principles behind setting up goals and a budget that allows you to have more flexibility and be able to adapt when situations come up. I pulled these from personal experience and speaking with other families to see what commonalities were there that could be helpful for families looking for a much more adaptable way to plan and budget. The first one is even before you talk about the numbers, it's absolutely key that you clearly define what your goal is and your why. It's easy to go through life almost like a checklist as you hit these milestones, but some of these goals may not really fit what you want to do with your lives. I've talked to families who are financially independent or location independent or both. One of the commonalities I saw was that they had a purpose and a reason behind it. It wasn't just that they wanted to travel. Their motivation is they wanted to have more time as a family and meaningful conversation. Families that wanted to retire early, it wasn't just about escaping a job they didn't like. They wanted to be fully present as parents. One of the best things you can do is look long-term with your goals. What kind of life is your family trying to build? And what's your reason behind it? The second is they had a financial system, whether they called it a budget or not, that hit the three main goals. They're able to take care of their bills, They're able to build financial stability and eventually wealth. And then they had money to enjoy. And this may surprise you, but there are very different budget methods that can get you there. If you love being deep in the weeds and looking at the details, there are budgets like Every Dollar or YNAB that allows you to break it down and see every cent of your money and gives you that clarity that you may prefer. Other families I talk to like that bucket approach, the 50, 20, 30, or whatever percentage you want to use, where they have a purpose for each of those buckets and they have an amount or percentage that they're setting aside. The reason that works is because that budget aligned with how they naturally saw their finances. When they spent, it was purpose or mission driven. A phrase that's thrown around, but I don't think it's talked enough, is conscious spending. Sometimes you hear in the personal finance space that spending is bad. you got to save and invest. I do think you need to set that aside for your long-term goals. But it's also about enjoying the life you have now and using your money for your most important resource, time. Another key principle I saw with families is this idea of being able to live on one income and then using that second income for speeding up reaching their long-term goals. In other words, they created a budget that was self-contained in a sense. They could hit those three main areas, pay their bills, build financial stability and wealth, have some fun, 
with their regular budget. A huge advantage of having a budget that is able to hit all three of those areas is if you get a windfall, whether that's a bonus, a tax return, a stimulus check, you can use it to hit your financial goals faster. And many families, especially in this community, also use that money to increase their giving. So it's a win for everyone. Another key point I notice with families is that they have these regular check-ins, not just with your finances, but also with your goals. I love to talk about money dates and how helpful they can be. The benefits go beyond just the numbers. If you are looking at this on a monthly basis or you're doing these quick weekly check-ins, it's very easy to bounce back if you have a setback or if life happens and you have to make an adjustment. You're less discouraged and you're more likely to hit your goals because you're able to quickly pivot. However you approach the details of your finances, just keep in mind that it is a tool to build a life that you love. Considering the topic we're covering today, planning during uncertain times, I believe talking about student loans makes sense. At the beginning of this month, many families were looking at the news, seeing what was going to happen with their loans. Last week, President Biden had extended a pause on federal student loan payments and collections and kept the interest rate at 0%, at least until the end of September. That's a huge pressure off your back if you're dealing with federal student loans, but that doesn't cover private loans. What do you do about those? Is now a good time to refinance them? Are some student loans going to be forgiven? While we can't predict how things are going to play out, we can look at the things you need to consider to make the best choice for you right now. Megan Landris, a certified student loan professional, chatted with me and explained some of your options. And she also got into the differences between federal and private loans, as well as breaking down how the public service loan forgiveness program works. A lot of people in my community are dealing with student loans, especially with couples. They have a mix between the two of them, federal and private loans. They're trying to figure out, okay, with this year, how we're going to handle our finances, and we have to come up with a plan with our student loans. That could be a significant chunk. But then also on the other side, well, you don't want to pay it off faster because relatively speaking, they could be lower interest. So they're trying to prioritize where do we put student loans? Is this something we should pay off quicker? I want to jump right in now with the differences between federal and private student loans. It is confusing because they are very different. Federal loans are a lot more complex, meaning they have different repayment options. You can base off of income. You could still have amateurized options where they spread the payment out over a specific period of time and have either a fixed or a graduated payment. The sheer just number of repayment options, you have up to either eight or nine repayment options within the Fed system. Makes it overwhelming all altogether. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that's different about federal loans is the forgiveness opportunity that they could carry. There's public service loan forgiveness, which I'm sure we'll dive into later on. And then there's also the forgiveness on any of the income-driven plans if you hit the maximum repayment period, which is either 20 or 25 years, depending on which, which plan it is. They're not a traditional debt. And so 
sometimes we don't need to be treating them like a traditional debt in certain circumstances, but private loans are a little more straightforward. Private loans, we don't have income-driven options. I haven't seen private lenders offering them. They don't have forgiveness opportunity. You pay based off of the terms you committed to, so the term or the time frame to pay them off, the interest rate, and the balance. And you're kind of stuck with that payment unless you were to refinance, which is to take that private loan to another private company and they offer you ideally a lower interest rate. You can kind of manipulate your terms from there. Private loans are a little more simple. Treat them like a traditional debt. Federal loans are a little interesting. (laughs) And so they might take another pause to maybe decide how you need to treat them. I do want to talk a little bit about that. You said because they're different, the way you approach it is going to be different. And that makes it a little more complicated because you're trying to figure out when we're prioritizing one, paying off debt, where does that fit in? And two, if a couple has other goals, like down the line, buying a house, starting a business, starting a family, all of the above, where does that fit in and what would be the best option? I think federal student loans, it it depends on if we're taking an aggressive route with them or a passive route with them. If we're taking an an aggressive route, that's where we are treating it like a debt, it's probably better to pay it off sooner rather than later, reduce that interest cost. So that's where refinancing could be really valuable because interest rates right now are really low. But maybe a pause there because right now interest rates on federal loans are 0%. And so we have to make sure that we, we feel confident in that refinancing decision and we're not walking away from any flexibility or federal benefits that we could take advantage of. Generally, if we're taking a more aggressive route, paying it down sooner and is better. Now, where that falls on the totem pole, interest rates generally on student loans are lower. If you're issued a private loan going to school. You might find, I mean, the averages really range because it is based off of credit when you borrowed, but I've seen as low as 4% to as high as 12% for a private student loan. I think first and foremost, priority order of where that falls. If we have any credit card debt in the mix, we need to tackle that. That's likely going to have a much higher interest rate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those numbers are I've seen like past 20% in certain cases, Ugh. you know. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I think 29.99 is the most it can go, but my goodness, that's an expensive debt to carry. Yeah. So I would say tackle that first. I also like to suggest making sure your emergency fund is properly funded before slamming a ton of money into the student loans. I think if that interest rate is in that gray area or high, and I consider that to be anywhere above, you know, five to six percent. That's when we kind of get in a gray area to where that's costing us quite a bit. We might want to look at accelerating that. I almost never like to suggest accelerating debt unless it's credit cards without also saving towards our future. I think there's a really healthy balance you can achieve there. If we can't get that debt refinanced, and you're at 11%, you might, one, you might want to definitely make sure there's nothing on your credit that's, that's really negative. Or maybe it's 
credit card debt that you have to pay down too. I think that that could be a good route to go as far as priority order there. I, I, I love that you did talk about you have to consider so many different factors. I yeah. do appreciate sometimes when there is a like a step-by-step plan, but then the reality in life is, wait a minute, we have to reevaluate one factors like what are our goals? What's the interest rate? What benefits? And like we mentioned, the, the difference between a federal and a private loan. I do want to talk to you about this because people hear this consolidating their student loans and makes it easier for them or refinancing. First of all, can you clarify the difference between the two? And then what are some considerations couples should take into account before making a decision? Yeah, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because I feel like those words get used interchangeably and they are very different things. So consolidation is combining your federal loans within the federal system. So we keep them federal. All we're doing is we're just simplifying. And pros to that is, one, it simplifies. Two, it can open up eligibility to different repayment options that maybe you didn't have previously. Some cons to consolidation that you want to make sure you know about are it does wipe away payment history. So if we are pursuing forgiveness in any fashion, you'd want to think about it before refinancing to see if it's worth erasing those years that you've had. Sometimes it makes sense, but other times it doesn't. And it doesn't, maybe a con, but not really a con, is it, it doesn't change your interest rate. It takes the weighted average of your existing interest rates and rounds up to the, the nearest one-eighth of a percent. It doesn't make it worse necessarily, but it def- definitely doesn't make it better. So, you know, that's not going to improve your interest rate significantly. Refinancing, on the other hand, that's where we either already have private loans or we have federal loans and we're taking them to another private company. And we're essentially paying off the other loan with a private loan. The reason you would do this is to, you know, get a lower interest rate, change your terms, maybe simplify. I see that being a, a big positive thing sometimes. So that's the primary differences between the two, but they are, you know, those words, I hear it all the time. People will say consolidate, but they meant refinance and vice versa. They even say it like on the commercials. It makes me so mad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did clarify that because sometimes we're busy. We are glancing at those letters that we get in the mail and a couple might say, you know what, refinancing is the way to go. Then maybe they look online and they see consolidation and in their mind, they kind of switch things around. When would be a good time to look at refinancing versus consolidation? What would you say, keep your federal student loans versus maybe refinancing and making it private? Yeah, so you should definitely keep your loans federal for a lot of different reasons. Main one would be for flexibility. And right now is a perfect example of the flexibility and the generosity of the federal system, meaning we're, you know, having this COVID-19 pandemic here. And part of the CARES Act, they implemented student loan relief, but only for federally held student loans. It wasn't really mandated for private loan companies to, to offer relief to borrowers, people who have federal loans, 
They have no payments currently. Their interest is at 0%. And that has been extended, but interest has been frozen or at 0% since March. So that's an example of some flexibility. That's a huge benefit. I mean, mm-hmm. especially with people dealing with unemployment or a reduction in their income, a little less yep. stress. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, that to kind of continue on that point, you know, federal loans are just very generous if we were to lose our income or lose our job, have an impact to income or just generally need to press pause on payments for a period of time. They're a lot more flexible. You have up to three years of forbearance availability. And so you can use that generally at your discretion. That doesn't really exist in the private student loan world. You'll have some like financial hardship forbearance opportunity, but it's not as generous. It'll be a couple months, three months, maybe you might need more than that. So that's one thing. Another thing you'd be giving up leaving the federal system would be Federal loans are 100% dischargeable upon death or permanent disability. Something to know. Private loans will typically have in their terms that they're not uh, dischargeable upon death. That means they stand in line with your other creditors upon your death or they're still going to be due if you're not able to earn income and you're disabled. So that's something definitely worth noting for a protection piece. Um, yeah, I think and then I another reading a story about that in the New York mm-hmm. Times where parents had co-signed mm-hmm. in one particular case, their son died and they went after the parents. That was insane yeah. and something you don't think about at the time. Well, like I'm healthy. I'm going to pay this back, but yeah. Uh, private loans. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So private loans are worse from that perspective. Some other downsides to leaving the Fed system. If you're working in public service or if we have a very large balance, meaning our balance is much more than our annual income, the federal system has income-driven plans that make that payment way more affordable than it would be if you were to amortize it or pay it off as a regular debt. And it has the safe haven of forgiveness if that balance is large enough to where those income-driven plans don't pay it off in that 20 or 25-year time frame, which some folks might be gasping now, like, oh, is that possible? But I see it a lot. I see jumbo size balances, and it's not something that is going to back you into a corner. If you stay in the Fed system, there's definitely a way to plan around it, and it could mean going that forgiveness route. So there's some opportunity there. I'm not against refinancing. I know I mm-hmm. probably sound like it right now, <laughs> but I just think there are some really serious uh, considerations to make sure you take into account before you pull that trigger. Hopefully that makes sense and didn't scare anybody. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate it because whatever decision a couple makes, I want them eyes wide open on that. They may decide, thanks to your explanation, where they'll keep their federal loans where they are, but then refinance the private and make sure they don't take away those protections or benefits. Again, every couple has to make their own decisions, but they should be informed about the consequences of that. I do want to talk about forgiveness. That's come up a few times in Mm -hmm. our conversation with the federal loans, but the biggest program that a lot of people probably heard about is that public service loan forgiveness program. Mm -hmm. And Megan, I've seen some news stories where basically it says it's 
almost impossible to get it. The people have had their files lost, all that progress, you know, it's a headache and a pain. So this is a two-parter. I want to ask, what do you think about the program, its validity, if it's actually something people should pursue or kind of base their finances on that? Because some people are making that decision based on the fact that they believe it's going to be um, forgiven. And then if they decide to go that route, what steps should couples take to make sure that they comply with the program? Yeah, so PSLF definitely has maybe some stigma around it right now. For some background, it's a newer program, meaning it was enacted in 2007. So the first time we could have ever seen anybody get forgiveness was 2017. That's just three years ago. And so PSLF, it's not a repayment plan. It's really a a forgiveness program that you can pursue if you're checking all the boxes correctly. Just like anything, you know, if you're trying to enter a contest, you have to follow the rules and submit your information correctly. (laughs) So think about it in that way. The program itself, if we're doing our due diligence on our loan situation and we check those boxes, you are going to achieve that PSLF forgiveness. It's just a matter of keeping a pulse on that over time and and making sure that we're doing our due diligence throughout our loan periods. Another big contributor, I think, to the stigma is, I think, bad data, honestly. I think I'm convinced there's certain topics that they just know they're going to get a lot of attention on. One of the biggest articles, and you probably heard of this one, but it was 99% of PSLF applicants were denied. I saw that, Yeah, I feel like everybody saw it, even if they didn't have student loans. (laughs) This article was, of course, horrifying if that was something you were pursuing. But if you break apart the math, literally in that article, you can really start to identify what went wrong or why that number happened. The majority of those rejections came from people applying for the forgiveness before reaching 120 payments, which is the 10-year time frame, essentially. What I think happened, and I'm speculating, but what I think happened is there was a buzz in 2017, 2018, Mm -hmm. that you could then apply for PSLF and get your loans forgiven. I feel like people who hadn't even done the time yet just said, ah, I'm going to apply and see what happens. And so it really inflated the numbers because part of that program is you have to work in public service full time Mm -hmm. and make 120 qualifying payments, which is 10 years. Someone who graduated, you know, in 2015 that applied, of course, would have been denied. (laughs) And so I feel like they should have taken that data out. Other factors we can talk about with the the qualifications, but I think that's where the majority of some of the the bad data comes from, honestly. Yeah, I I think that's interesting. I do want to talk to you a a little bit about going through the checklist. This is definitely a case of keep good records. You have to have on your end some kind of record of the payments in the history, but could you kind of go through high level uh, steps for the program? Yeah. So, and I think it's uh, really, it's really simple. So there are five requirements, which sounds like a lot, but it's not that much. The first is the most obvious. We have to be working in public service for this forgiveness program. 
that's any government entity, that's any nonprofit or 501c3, as long as they're tax exempt, they should qualify for this program. Second requirement is we have to work full time for that entity. And so they determine that as 30 hours on average or more, unless the employer has a different definition. So if your employer says full time is 40 hours, then you need to be working 40 hours on average per week. These two things are verified on an employer certification form. But it's really simple to, you know, double check that your employer qualifies from the get-go. So it's not a shocker if they do or don't. You can simply Google this, just the the PSLF employer certification form, and you'll find it. Third requirement is you have to have the correct type of loans. This is where you want to look at your loan file. It's only for federal loans. And it's only for direct loans. So as long as your loan code or what it says on your statement says direct somewhere in it, you should be good. Fourth requirement is we have to be paying on an income-driven plan. There's four options you could potentially have for an income-driven plan. If we're going towards forgiveness, we want to pay as little as possible to maximize the forgiveness. So you would choose one of the lower plans, which could be either revised pay-as-you-earn, pay-as-you-earn. Those are both 10% of your discretionary income. The last requirement is just making 120 qualifying monthly payments. And so a qualifying payment is one where all four of those previous things I mentioned exist at the same time. One misconception is your employment has to be with the same employer. It doesn't. You can go from, you know, one public service entity to another, just file another employment certification form. Another misconception is if you miss a payment or if you skip a year in service that you lose all your payment history, and that's not true either. If you do have a break in service or you go private practice and then come back to public service, payments when you were in private practice don't count but they pick back up where they left off if you go back into public service. Those are the the five requirements and some of the the technicalities. Thank you. If anyone wants to learn more and they want to work with you, what's the best way they can reach out to you? Yeah, so to reach out to me, I consult with a company called Student Loan Planner. You'll find our website and our blogs are a wealth of information on any student loan topic you could think of. If it's something where you wanted a customized plan, you can schedule a consult with us. And I, I consult specifically Mondays and Wednesdays, but you can always request me if, if you'd like. The rest of our team is lovely as well. There is as big of a student loan nerd as myself, so you'll be taken care of. <laughs> This segment is brought to you by Coastal Credit Union. If you want to live better, you got to bank better. Find out how at bankbetter.org. Before we wrap up, I want to share a few key takeaways I got from preparing this episode. The first is to take a long-term approach with your goals. There's a good chance that you won't quite hit your goals this year, and that's okay. So what if you miss your goal for the quarter or you broke your budget one month? you can still pick up where you are, review what went well, what didn't, and then adjust accordingly. Let's say you're trying to pay down that student loan and you only get to 80% of your goal. You're still that much closer to what you're trying to achieve. The second is take your goals and break them down. 
I understand that you want to hit this big audacious goal, but take it quarter by quarter. That way you can see how is the year going? Are things going well? Then you can continue on the path, maybe ramp up the goal. Or if things have changed and it's a bit harder, you can adjust accordingly. You want to be adaptable with your goals and you also want to stay motivated. And the last takeaway is nail down your numbers. It is so important for you to have a great foundation with your finances. And the first step is awareness. You can't create a budget that fits you and your goals if you don't know how your cash flows. So hopefully you took January's monthly money challenge, which was tracking your finances. I know it may have sounded a bit too simple to be our first challenge, but with everything that happened in 2020, things most likely shifted in your budget. It made sense to one, take a breather, and then two, get a clear idea of how your cash flow is currently working. For February, our monthly challenge is honing in on your budget for 2021. We want to make sure that it's a great fit for you. We're drafting a budget that's going to hit those three main areas, your essential and day-to-day bills, your financial goals, and having money to enjoy this year. I want the two of you to have specific numbers for each of these buckets so that you know where your money is going and what it's doing for you. And if you have any questions on how to set things up with your budget, please send them in. I'm going to do a video answering your questions, and I'll also be sharing our budget with you. I want this year to be incredible, not just with the finances, but also the two of you working as a team. Special thanks to Megan for being a part of the show. If you want to reach out to her to get some advice on how to approach your student loans, please check her out at financialcoachmegan.com. As always, I'll have a link to our site as well as other resources we mentioned, plus more over in our show notes at Simplify and Enjoy. I also know how encouraging it is to have people cheering you on. So if you want to discuss what you're working on this year with your family's finances, please join us in the Thriving Families Facebook group. The whole point of our group is to support one another on our journeys. Come share your goals for the year. We'd love to help you out. Next week on the podcast, we're preparing for tax season. We're going to look and review what tax deductions and credits you should look out for. So if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed. You don't want to miss out on that episode. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Radio Public, whatever podcast app you prefer. Our theme song is from Staircases, additional music by various artists from audio. Finally, and most importantly, thank you so much for your support. Please be a part of our community and get the latest episodes, videos, and more sent to you. Just head over to simplifyandenjoy.com slash join. I hope you have a wonderful week. Take care.